Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. open your Bibles to Hebrews 10. A friend of mine emailed me uh, a, uh, I guess you'd call it sort of a, a year in the life of somebody from the 1500s. King Solomon said, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? Well, if you hear some of these facts in the 1500s, you might not think they were the good old days. Anne Hathaway was the wife of William Shakespeare. She married at the age of 26. This was really unusual for her time. Most people married at the age of 11 or 12. Life was not as romantic as we may picture it. Here are some examples. Anne Hathaway's home, growing up home, was a three-bedroom house with a small parlor which was seldom used only for company. It had a kitchen and no bathroom. Mother and father shared a bedroom. Anne had a queen-sized bed, but did not sleep alone. She also had two other sisters, and they shared the bed also with six servant girls. They didn't sleep like we do, lengthwise, but all laid on the bed crosswise. At least they had a bed. The other bedroom was shared by her six brothers and 30 field workers. (laughs) They didn't have a bed. Everyone just wrapped up in their blanket and slept on the floor. They had no indoor heating, so all the extra bodies kept them warm. They were also small people. The men only grew to be about 5'6", and the women about 4'8". So in their house, they had 27 people living. Most people got married in June. Why? Those of you, many of you know that June's a big wedding month. Here you'll find out why. They took their yearly bath in May. There were superstitions back then, of course, that, you know, bathing and getting cold would lead to illness and death. They were still smelling pretty good by June, (laughs) although they were starting to smell. So the brides would carry a bouquet of flowers to mask uh, their uh, body odor. Like I said, they took their yearly bath in May, but it was just a big tub, and they would fill it with hot water. The man of the house would get the privilege of the nice, clean water. Can I hear an amen? Amen. 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 (laughs) Then all the sons and men, then the women, finally the children, last of all the babies. By then the water was pretty thick, thus the saying, don't throw the baby out with the bath water. It was so dirty you could actually lose someone in it. You've heard of thatch roofs? Well, that's what they had. Thick straw piled high with no wood underneath. They were the only place for the little animals to get warm. So the pets, the dogs, cats, and other animals, mice, rats, bugs, all lived in the roof. When it rained, it became slippery, so sometimes the animals would slip and fall off the roof. Thus the saying, it's raining cats and dogs. 
Since there was nothing to stop things from falling into the house, they would just try to clean up a lot. But this posed a real problem in the bedroom where bugs and other droppings from animals could really mess up your nice clean bed. So they found if they would make beds with big posts and hang a sheet over the top, it would solve the problem. That's where those beautiful big four-poster beds with canopies came from. When you came into the house, you would notice most times that the floor was dirt. Only the wealthy had something other than dirt. That's where the saying, dirt poor, came from. The wealthy would have slate floors. That was fine in the, in the winter, but they would get slippery when they got wet. So they started to spread thresh. That's what's left over after you thresh the grain. Spread the thresh onto the floor to keep their footing. As the winter wore on, they would just keep adding it and adding it. And when you open the door, it would all start slipping outside. So they put a piece of wood at the entryway called the threshold. In the kitchen, they would cook over the fire. They had a fireplace in the kitchen slash parlor that was seldom used, and sometimes in the master bedroom they had a fireplace. They had a big kettle that always hung over the fire in the kitchen, and every day they would light the fire and start adding things to the pot. Mostly they ate vegetables. They didn't get much meat. They would eat the stew for dinner, then leave the leftovers in the pot to get cold overnight, then start over again the next day. Sometimes the stew would have food in it that had been there for a month. Thus the rhyme, peas porridge hot, peas porridge cold, peas porridge in the pot, nine days old. <laughs> so many good stories and so little time. The good old days. I'm thankful I don't live in them. I'm only 47, but I have some memories of the good old days that I try to dredge up every once in a while. Our kids make fun of me, you know, get out the old album cover from my 10 minutes of fame with the college singing group or whatever. Remembering and rehearsing of the good old days as being a negative thing, and it can be. But today in the book of Hebrews, God is going to command us to look back to some old days that might not have seemed too good at the time, but they actually turned out for good and they need to encourage our living in the present time, especially from the example of these Hebrews, these Hebrew folks that this book was addressed to. Follow with me as I read Hebrews 10 verse 32 and following. Hebrews 10.32, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise, quote, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and he will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, unquote. But we are not of those who draw back.
to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We understand from this passage of Scripture that in the history of this group of believers, first of all, we understand that they had believed in Christ. He says they were illuminated. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians 4, we, we understand a little better why this word illuminated is used. It's important for us to understand that in Scripture, God uses many different terms to talk about salvation, and oftentimes they are used as synonyms. But each of those words that is a synonym for salvation is also a distinct facet of salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This passage tells us several very important things. One thing is this. Satan is trying to keep your mind blind to the gospel if you are not a Christian. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, Satan, through the world system, is doing everything he can to keep you confused and misguided and misdirected and to make the scripture look hard to understand. That is his mission in life, to keep you from accepting Christ. And if you are finding the scripture hard to understand today, you need to understand this. It is a spiritual endeavor, and there is a spiritual battle going on. It is not because you have intellectual problems. But the good news is, God is in the business of turning on the light and opening our eyes. I don't know if you've ever tried to read a book in the extreme dark. Maybe as a young person your parents said lights out and you just had to finish a book or had to read something. You get your little light. The darker it is, the harder it is to read. The harder it is to grasp things with our eyes and with our mind. God says that is spiritually true as well. He is in the business of opening our eyes. In Hebrews chapter 10, when he refers to these folks as ones who have been illuminated, what he is saying is, you came to a point in your life where God turned on the light of the gospel of Christ, and you were able to see it, and you went, wow, that's it, and you believed, and you came to know Christ. You were illuminated. They believed in Christ. The second thing we understand about these folks, and turn with me to Acts chapter 4, if you will, for an example of this. But in Hebrews 10, he says, you were illuminated and then you endured a great struggle of suffering. In Acts chapter 4, we're going to read about the kind of suffering that Christians went through simply because they were Christians and were willing to say that publicly. Now, I want to be clear here. We don't know that the suffering written about in the book of Acts is the same Hebrew people. I don't necessarily think it is. But it's the kind of suffering they went through. Acts 4, verse 1. 
Now as they, Peter and John, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed. You know, when God writes the Bible, he's not quite as explicit as we would be. You know, if this was a movie script, it would have, it would have a bunch of words there to describe a riot scene and people just going crazy with anger. They were greatly disturbed. They, they weren't just coming in going, uh, excuse me, would you please stop that? They were really upset. They were greatly disturbed and that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They opposed the doctrine of God. And they laid hands on them and they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. However... Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That gives you some idea of the size of the crowd. <laughs> there were thousands of people. And folks came around and laid hands on them. Have you ever had anybody lay hands on you in anger? You know, they, they come around, they just take a look at you, and they think, I don't like you, and I'm going to lay some hands on you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that happened today? I'm, I'm standing here preaching the Bible, and here comes a group of people coming in saying, we hate what you're teaching, and they, they just come up here. I, I'm sure all of you men would step up to defend me, and hopefully there would be more of us than them. Uh, by the way, a little sidelight. You know, when Jesus sent the apostles out the second time, he said, if you have a sword, you better take it with you. And they said, we've got two swords for the 12 of us, and they said, he said, that's enough. So don't be afraid to defend the preacher if it becomes necessary. These folks were just, they were beat up. They were, they were uh, physically harassed. Look at chapter 5 of Acts, verse 17. Acts 5, 17. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, that was part of the Jewish religion, and they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So here they not only laid their hands on them, they tossed them in jail. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Then there arose from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, that is uh, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Sicily and Asia, a, they were disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Do you know what that means? That means that they could not out-argue him intellectually. They were trying to defeat his words with their own words, and they couldn't do it. And it wasn't because Stephen was a college or seminary educated man. It was because he was a spirit-filled man speaking by the power of God. Verse 11, so what did they do? They secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs, and so on. And of course, you know the end of the story of Stephen. They took him out and stoned him and killed him. Now that's, that's getting a little more extreme. We, you know, we can all handle a little bit of insult and maybe a little bit of injury. 
This word in the book of Hebrews, it says they endured a great struggle of sufferings. It's from the word we get athletic from or athlete. It means a contest, a struggling. Look at Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 28. This is Paul in Ephesus preaching away. And when they heard this, when the crowd, the, the people who didn't like him heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater. We would call that an amphitheater. You have that mental picture of the Greek amphitheater. They rushed into the theater, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. As we come back to the book of, of, of Hebrews, we see the same word for theater. He says in Hebrews 10.32, you were made a spectacle. Literally, you were made a theater. You were made something that people were looking at and, and laughing at and, and hurling insults at. You were the main attraction in town. These folks in the book of Hebrews, it says that they suffered verbal abuse. In, in verse 33, it uses the word reproach. And then it uses the word tribulation in verse 33 as something different from reproach, which probably infers physical harm. And it was a common experience for Christians in the early days after Christ. And he says not only were they personally persecuted, but he says, you had compassion on me in my chains. Some translations, some, some Greek texts leave out the words in me that the sense of the meaning is the same. You had compassion on Christians who were in jail. And he says, how did they respond to this terrible testing? He says here in Hebrews 10, verse 32, they endured. They endured. They endured a great struggle with sufferings. In verse 34, it says, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. You know what that means? That means the people came into their house and said, hey, I like that. I'm taking that home. And they couldn't do anything about it because it was the civil authority coming and harassing them. People came in and stole their belongings. They insulted them. They physically abused them. And how did they, how did they respond? Well, they immediately filed a lawsuit They say, you can't do that. Now, now don't get me wrong here. I, as I said earlier, I'm not for being a pacifist. I'm, I'm for using the rights that we have. But even before we use those rights, how do we respond to difficulty, whether it be outright persecution or difficulty in life? These folks, first of all, they endured. They endured. How easy is it for you to give up? Oh man, I, I wanted to get a, a varsity letter when I was in high school, but I did not want to turn out. <laughs> Why in the world would anybody want to do that? No pain, no gain. Well, isn't there something else we can work out? No. They endured. They endured. 
and they joyfully accepted the difficulties. Verse 34 really tells the story. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. Why? Because they knew they had a better and enduring possession waiting for them in heaven. In Matthew, he says, lay up treasure in heaven where nothing can get to it. Their song, although it hadn't been written yet, was probably this one. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-scarred hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. These new Christians, this first generation of Christians that didn't even have the whole Bible, they didn't have a church building, they got a hold of this truth that what's in heaven is permanent and what is here is not. And they said, take it. Take it. Maybe they quoted from Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I'm going out of this earth. Take it. But something happened. That's how they were. But something happened. Maybe there was something really hard that happened. Something big in the Christian community. I think more likely there was a whole bunch of little things and the tribulation and the difficulty just kept going and kept going and kept going. And finally they thought, oh man, I can't do it anymore. They were enduring, but they'd come to a point where God has to say, Recall what happened. What did they need to do? The first thing they needed to do was to remember their past. Literally, he says, keep on reminding yourself. It's a present tense word. Keep on reminding yourself. Recall the hardship. Recall the endurance. Recall the joy of victory. They were the bad old days, but the good old days. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. These folks knew by experience what 1 Corinthians 10.13 teaches us. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, the first half is all going through things that happened to the people of God in the Old Testament. And he says, these are for our examples. And verse 13, he summarizes it by saying, listen, no temptation has ever overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That's why he told all those terrible things that the people in the Old Testament had been through. He said, look, you're not going through something new. It's common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. The Hebrew Christians to whom Hebrews 10 is addressed had done that. They were in these terrible trials, and they said, God is good. We're going to heaven someday. Give me your worst. But eventually, they came to a point where they said, man, I can't take it. 
And God said, look back. Look back. Look back to those good old days and think all you went through. And look how God was faithful back then. I want you to tell me right now, in one or two, three, one or two words, things you have been through, things that God has brought you through. Just shout it out. Speak loudly. Come on, I want to hear what, you, what God has brought you through. Walt surgery. What's, Walt's surgery. Twins. <laughs> Speak. Cancer. He OD'd on methamphetamine. God brought him through that. That's right. What else? Concentration camp. Yes. Or the, the, the Japanese camps here. Yes. 52 years of heading the wrong direction, difficulties. Yes. What else? What's he brought you through? Great Depression. Lack of potassium. Life-threatening illness. Okay. Being, being, being cast out by family, yes. Look at all these things we've been through. God says to these folks, look, what, look back and remember what you've been through. We live in today. And if today gets a little bit tough, that's all we can see. Oh, look how hard today is. And it is. You know, my dad mentioned the Great Depression. Some of you may have economic trials right now. But it ain't like the Great Depression. <laughs> and maybe you had some economic trials earlier in your life and God brought you through it. God says, look back, recall the former days. Now, God never says, live in the former days. That's when we get into trouble. When we go back and think, well, I had a victory back then, so it doesn't matter if I have a victory today. No, no, God's not saying that. God's saying, look back and remember his faithfulness. Don't forget what God has done. They needed to remember. Secondly, they needed to remain with God. Look what he says there in verse 35 of Hebrews 10. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence. Now when we read that word confidence, we tend to think of some kind of personal emotion that makes us feel like a Christian and feel close to God. I don't believe that's what he's talking about. The same word, confidence, is in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. What is the confidence that we have in, in Hebrews 10, 19? He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness or confidence, it's the same Greek word, having boldness to enter the holiest, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus. What's he talking about? We've already learned that where he says, look, we have access right into God's throne room. He says, don't throw that away. It's too easy to get discouraged and then just give up on connecting with God, to give up on asking for God's help. We have boldness to enter the Holy of Holies to talk with God. One commentator said this, the storm of persecution burst on them early. They weathered it nobly. So why give up the voyage when it's nearly done? Isn't that a challenging thought? Maybe it's the, the strength of youth in the Lord. I, I don't know what it is. But these folks were ready to give up, and God says, no, don't throw it away. Stay here. What is the great reward? Verse 35 says, your confidence has a great reward. What is the, the reward? 
I believe the reward is God's help itself. In verse 19, he says, draw near. Verse 20, he goes on by a new and living way. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, for he who promised is faithful. The difficulties of life, we, we can allow the difficulties of life to become so omnipresent that we stop going to God and saying, God, help me. We stop going to God's word and gleaning his wisdom. We just flat give up on life in Christ. And God says to these Hebrew folks, don't cast away your confidence. Don't throw it away. Hang on to it. They needed to remain with God. One commentator said this, the great reward is not eternal life or heaven. Rather, it is the utilization of the confidence that produces the abundant life which embraces the glorification of God, personal joy, and answered prayer. When a believer abides in Christ through total submission, then he takes advantage of the confidence afforded him. The divine response to human need is thus the great reward. God wants to help us. But if we draw back from him when we are in difficulty... He's not able to help us because we have turned in sin from Him. God, they needed to remain. We need to remain to abide in Christ. The third thing they needed to do was to recommit to God. Look at verse 36. You have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Turn with me to 1 Peter 4. Just after the book of Hebrews and James is 1 Peter. There's a little truth here that's, that's a real challenge for us, especially in our modern day American society that is so blessed. 1 Peter 4.16 Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful creator. Now, the primary reference of this passage in, Hebrew, in Peter and Hebrews, I think, is to what we would call persecution. But the word suffering there is much broader than that. He says it is possible for you, Christian, to be suffering according to the will of God. That brings great light on that little command that says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Brings great light on the command that says, give thanks in everything. Not for everything, in everything. It's exactly what Job went through. Job suffered greatly according to the will of God. These Hebrew Christians were suffering according to the will of God. And what God tells them is, he says, endure 
so that you may receive the promise. They needed to remain. They needed to recommit. And the thing we have to understand in our commitment to God is this. Our suffering is used by God. God wants to grow us up. And in his divine wisdom, suffering is the way that it happens. The second thing that we need to understand is in our suffering, God desires our endurance. What's the current standard for cardiovascular exercise? Do you know? It seems to change every so often. Latest I've heard is 45 minutes a day for five days a week. Is that right? Close to that. It used to be 45 minutes a day for three days a week. Now it's five days. Pretty soon it's going to be spend half of your time exercising and uh, the other half eating vegetables. Because <laughs> it takes a whole half a day of eating vegetables to get full, you know. <laughs> But when you, if you're going to exercise your heart, and those of you that have had heart problems probably are exercising because you know how important it is, you know there's got to be exercise, there's got to be pain in the form of perspiration. You want, if you want to do cardiovascular exercise, you have to do it fast, you have to walk fast enough or lift enough weight until you sweat. And that's the indicator that you know you've gotten your cardiovascular system up to speed enough to do you some good. Now, if the doctor came along and he said, in fact, I know of a doctor years ago whose dad died at a certain age and his grandfather died at a certain age and this doctor was peddling as fast as he could to make sure he did everything possible not to also die around age 40 from a heart attack. And you do the same thing if somebody came along and said, if you don't exercise hard, you are going to die. God says, Christian, you're not going to grow up unless you suffer some pain. That's it. That's the bottom line. Now, could God have done it some other way? I'm sure he could have because he's God. But if this is what he came up with, it leads me to believe maybe this is really the best way. Our faith is going to be tested. And in James 1, he says, let patience have its work. That's the same word for endure right here. You have need of endurance. Why do we think that spiritual growth is going to be pain-free? Whoever said that? God didn't say it. <laughs> The reason we think that is because we live in a society that strives to be pain-free, whether it be physical pain or emotional pain. That's the big goal. And so we think, well, of course, if I'm having pain, that's not God's will. Oh, yes, it very well may be. Why do we think that hardship means we've made a mistake? Now, we could be suffering because we've made mistakes. That is possible. But 1 Peter 5.10 says, May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. You know what? I don't like to preach this. You know why? Because God always seems to say, hey Dave, let's see if you believe what you were saying there yesterday. I don't like it. I really don't. I don't like this path, if you will. I, I would make it all happy and fun. You know me, I like to laugh. But God says, there's only one way for you to grow, and that is to endure. 
And we have got to commit ourselves to doing it. These Hebrew Christians had endured, but then they somehow let go of it. I don't suppose that's ever happened to you, has it? Maybe you've been through some difficulties. Some of you just told me you've been through some difficulties. God says we need to commit ourselves to the will of God, and if he wants us to suffer, then we suffer, and we say, praise the Lord, and afterward we receive the promise. These folks needed to refocus their hope in God. Look at the hope that he gives them in verse 37. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come, and he will not tarry or delay or be, be late. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 37 gives us the hope that is our future. It's, it's written in a very, a very unique way. It says a little, it, the word micron for little, and then it says how long, how long. A little, how long, how long. It's kind of poetic. A little while, and then Christ is coming. In Philippians 3.20, we are told that our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us we have all of God's blessings in heaven. They're all there. We possess them. Philippians 3.20 goes on to say, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior. The question we have to ask ourselves today is this. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? In your suffering, what are you waiting for? Think, well, I'm waiting for my ship to come in. And I'm hoping it's loaded with gold bars. Some lucky dog's going to win it. So I'm going to buy my lottery ticket at least one every Wednesday when it hits 20 million. My father-in-law plays the lottery when it hits a certain benchmark. You know, I mean, he's not going to give him a buck for just a million. Of course... I don't think he's ever gotten any of those millions back. <laughs> Some of you are doing the same thing. You're waiting for the, this big pot of money to come in. It's going to solve all your problems. Pretty, pretty sure that's the way it works, yeah. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for your problem to disappear? Are you waiting for your kids to grow up? Are you waiting for your parents to grow up? <laughs> God says we, in our difficulty, when we're trying to endure, we should be waiting for Jesus and saying, he's coming just a little while. Now, I, I fully realize, folks, it's been 2,000 years since that was first written and since people started saying, he's coming in just a little while. Do you know why it's just a little while till you see Jesus? Because at the most, you're going to live to be 120 like a handful of folks in the world do. And some of you aren't going to make it much past 50 or 60 or 70 or 80. How many years is just a little while in God's mindset? A hundred years is just not even a speck on his time chart. God says, just hang in there. Focus on the coming of Christ. Because when Christ comes, your ship's coming in. The streets are paved with gold. Gold is so common in heaven, they pave with it. Now, the people in Ferndale think that's what's happening downtown. 
Look, our tax dollars going down there, but in heaven it's true. God says, focus on Christ. He is coming. We need to have our hope in Him. Frankly, this world's going to let you down. And when you make it through this difficulty, if you've done it faithfully, God's going to bring you another one. God's going to trust you with something bigger. <laughs> oh, Lord, let me be immature. That's what these people said. They said, we don't want to grow up. He says, look, you need endurance. First, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Sight means I can figure out how this will resolve. I'm in a difficulty, and if it just goes like this, then everything will be fine. Faith says, I will trust God by obeying His way to get His desired outcome. Sight means I will not obey unless I have all the resources that I need at my fingertips. Faith says, I will rely on God to provide what is needed in every situation. He says, the just shall live by faith in verse 38. But if we draw back, God has no pleasure in us. And verse 39 goes on to say that the last thing they needed was to renew their identity in God. He says, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe in the saving of the soul. The word saving here is not the word usually translated for save. It's the word that means to possess, to acquire, to, to have something. He says, we are those who believe to the obtaining of our soul. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said this, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Warren Wiersbe said this in his commentary, and I think he's right on. The believer who lives by faith will go on to perfection, but the believer who lives by sight will draw back unto perdition. What is perdition in this context? The Greek word translated per perdition is used about 20 times in the New Testament and is translated by different words such as perish, die, destruction, and waste. The word can mean eternal judgment. But it need not in every instance. I personally believe that waste, quote-unquote, is the best translation of this word in Hebrews 10.39. A believer who does not walk by faith goes back into the old ways and wastes his life. I believe these Hebrew Christians were at the point of exasperation with God and the godly life for them, what that would mean would be going back to the Jewish Old Testament form of worship, which was doomed in part because they didn't know it, but in just a few years, the temple would be torn down by the Roman government. But it was also doomed because Christ had come and, and it was of no more use. He said, Christian, are you going to believe and cling to God and move forward, or are you going to pull back and wander in the wilderness like the people of Israel did. I was doubly sickened this week to hear of an army chaplain accused of espionage. I have worn the title chaplain, and when one of ours, I was not a military chaplain, but a public service chaplain, and when somebody else with that title 
does something like this that he is accused of spying for the, for the uh, Syrian government, all of us suffer. All of us clergy tend to get lumped together and this reflects poorly on me. But even without that, just the thought of an American soldier giving up on his country and helping the enemy angers and saddens me. Christian, is your allegiance clear today? Have you been thinking of giving up on Christ and the Christian life because the going has been tough? Don't do it. Remember, remain, recommit, refocus. Draw close to God and let Him bring you through. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.